Hello and welcome to this special podcast brought to you by the CSF. Today we'll be discussing the Global COVID-19 Rheumatology Registry. My name is Peter Nash from the Griffith University and today I'm joined by Professor Philip Robinson, who currently works at Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital in Hurston in sunny downtown Brisbane in Queensland. So welcome, Philip, and thank you very much for your time. It must be a very busy time for you at the moment uh, with lockdown and everything going on. Firstly, how are you coping with all that COVID-19? Has it made a huge difference to the way you practice medicine? Oh, look, um, we initially used a lot of telehealth to try and address things. Uh, that's coming back a little bit when the realities of obviously clinical care has meant you need to look after more people. Um, and when the reality of the fact that we didn't have so much of a problem here in Brisbane um, sort of became clear as well. So uh, we're able to probably be slightly more relaxed than certainly many other places in the world, yeah. So we're very fortunate today. We want to discuss with you the Global COVID-19 Registry and the Alliance and uh, how important it is to collect data on rheumatology patients. So can you give us a bit of uh, the history of how that uh, Alliance got together and how the Registry got started? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, it's one of those things is that essentially it was just a discussion that we were really having on Twitter amongst a number of us um, I'd been watching Twitter in early March quite closely to sort of see what was, you know, what was happening with this because certainly the previous coronavirus issues hadn't really been, you know, SARS-1 and MERS hadn't really turned out to be worldwide problems. Uh, but this one was sort of looking a bit different. So I was, I was actually on holiday in New Zealand at the time and, and just sort of looking at Twitter and, and, uh, and the WHO, in fact, uh, declared a pandemic. And that was sort of the first sign that really things were, gonna, were going pear-shaped, I suppose. And then uh, we're continuing discussions. And the next day, um, Glenn Calabresi from Cleveland uh, sort of flagged to a big group of us that uh, the IBD guys were putting together a consortium. Uh, and, you know, we just sort of said, hey, look, that seems like a really sensible thing to do. And it, it was, wasn't clear to any of us that we're having in the discussion that that this was being done already so um so that it sort of started from there and uh and people discussed about whether we should do it on redcap which is sort of a research um registered and uh um, database system and certainly have redcap at the university of queensland and janusi Azdani at ucsf also had red redcap and essentially i end up zooming janus uh Yazdani at ucsf uh, zoomed into her research group. She runs a large research group that does a lot of registry work. And uh, essentially we decided at that point that we should just get it going. And, and, uh, and so that's really how it started. And then it sort of snowballed from there with um, huge numbers of people saying, hey, I want to help. And then it's really just gone from there. So what were the objectives of the, of the uh, registry? Well, you know, it was very clear to us that um, that this was potentially going to be a problem for our patients. Certainly, you know, they've got underlying immune dysfunction anyway, the vast majority do. Uh, and then we don't really help situations by adding on immunosuppressants or immunomodulators on top of that. 
And so we thought, well, things, things are potentially bad from the underlying disease and things could potentially be made even worse by the drugs we use. And then there were these discussions about um, also circulating about how our drugs, in fact, might be helpful. Uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine and IL-6 inhibitors primarily, but there's also discussion about, um, you know, JAK kinase inhibitors uh, and, and, and other things like that. So, and so it, it, there was really multiple reasons to start collecting information about our patients and the drugs they're on, what effect they might have. So, so that, that was about, really the objective, yeah. How do you go about letting people know it even exists? Well, we, we sort of have a loyal uh, following on uh, Twitter and we've also got some um, uh, amazing IT people as well. And so we essentially did it via Twitter and by email and people who are interested, we sign them up. And that's and then uh, essentially a lot of the younger, the fellows or registrars got involved and they flagged it and they said hey look we'll go to our division and we'll go to our hospital network and we'll tell all our people so it sort of worked out being sort of a network effect which and was fantastic because we just sort of um mushroom so what mm-hmm. are your numbers just at the moment to give the audience an idea just how successful this has been well we're we're um the web page currently was updated a few days ago at 1,072, but I'd be very confident that we're well north of that now, probably around 1,200. Um, the Europeans are progressively bringing on additional countries. There are certainly a number of, you know, logistical issues that, you know, I'm happy to talk about that mean that there are delays in bringing on stream. And then there are a number of big US cities that are also working through the same logistical issues. And so when they come on stream, you get big jumps in numbers. So, um, yeah, so it was probably about 1,200 at this point. So I did see that the ULARs have a registry. Is it a combined registry or are they just collect and give it to you? Well, it, it, the data it's, on me. it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a collaboration uh, essentially because it started off um, – uh, as a global collective and we said we want to make this a global thing and then essentially we wanted to bring everyone in and it became clear based on the European data uh, regulations that it was going to be far easier to set up an instance of the registry in Europe for a number of different reasons uh, and so essentially that registry sits in the University of Manchester for purely logistical and regulatory reasons but the data from that uh, and, you know, it's labelled as the ULAR registry, flows to the global registry and it gets combined and we disseminate as, as one entity, really. It's a, it's a really, look, it's a really awesome sort of uh, precious partnership that everyone's come to the table on and everyone's been very happy to, to get involved with, yeah. which is really fantastic. It certainly is a very nice collaboration. Where's all your data kept and how did you kind of know what to extract, what form the shape, you know, the shape of the form and questions to ask. Yeah, well, so the data is kept physically. Uh, the global data is collected at UCSF and the, and the European data is collected at, uh, um, at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. What are we collecting? We want to, to strike a balance between completeness and the information that we needed, but also with... Um, essentially pragmatism. We knew that if we wanted, if we, if people were 
with asking people to sit down for half an hour, it just wasn't going to happen. And we don't need that much information. So, so it's a matter of balance between, hey, this is the information that we think would be uh, useful. But then we were very careful because, of course, we got people saying, hey, I want you to add this and, hey, I want you to add that. And at each of those junctures, we said, is that really worth the extra time? And so, for example, people said, look, I think it would be valuable to have lab data. And we said, yeah, but we made that a really optional part of it. So if you've got time and you're keen and you want to put it in, when you put a case in, you can put in lab data or you can just bypass that. Um, so there's a steering committee who makes those kinds of decisions? Yeah, so there's a steering committee um, of around 11 members that um, uh, uh, sort of lead each of the core um, uh, parts of the alliance. Uh, and, and so we discuss those sort of issues uh, amongst ourselves and, and, and decide sort of where we sit on those things, yeah. Super. Can you tell us a bit about the patient survey? So, yeah, so the patient survey was um, in response to really a number of things. One, really recognising that this is a pretty scary situation for patients to be in, especially when lots of the media said, hey, don't worry, most people are fine except vulnerable people. Uh, and so, and if you think about it, that's fine for the majority of the population, but if you're labelled one of those vulnerable people, you're like, well, what, what about me? So you can realise, you realise that it's potentially a really scary situation when all the media is saying, don't worry unless you're vulnerable. Well, and they weren't really addressing the vulnerable people. So, so patients uh, don't, don't have good information just because, I mean, we don't have good information either. And also there's a, there's a very clear, or we were very clear that we thought there would be bias in putting in the patients that were put into the physician reported registry. Because if you think about it, if you're well, you know, you, uh, you know, generally well, but you're worried, you go to a fever clinic, you get a swab, you, you go home, you get a phone call 24 hours later, you're COVID positive, stay at home until you're unwell. You're not necessarily going to, you know, ever go anywhere in front of a doctor. You would have obviously dealt with nurses at the fever clinic or, or a doctor who swabbed you, but you may never be in front of a doctor. So you may have COVID, you may be on a biological, you may have a rheumatic disease, but you never, you never actually get to the point where a doctor will see you and put your information in the registry. So therefore, we're potentially going to get a more serious um, uh, or more affected group that gets put into the registry. And so we said, well, if we ask patients directly, A, what's your experience of the pandemic and how they're doing? And then are you affected? You know, what are your manifestations? What drugs are you on? Those sort of things. Then we can we can we can sort of address both of those issues. So that's where the patient survey came along. And you've got a very large number of patients. Yeah, we're we're up over eleven thousand now, which is which is pretty amazing. Pretty like we, yeah, we didn't have any idea what sort of pickup that would get, but we've been pretty impressed by that. And the patients, the numbers are still coming in. And tell the audience about the Lancet publication that you've already put out there. Um, maybe when, so they could track it down, and a little bit about what it showed. Yeah, so the Lancet publication was published on about the 16th of April, if I remember correctly, and essentially it was our, our first 110 patients that were entered in the physician registry. Uh, and essentially it describes, it's a very descriptive analysis, so it describes the, 
the um, the diseases that they have, which you know, to summarize, it's a pretty typical rheumatic cohort. So there's lots of rheumatoid, psoriatics, um, uh, there's uh, lupus and SPA, and, you know, ankylosing spondylitis, axial spondylarthritis, and then there's some, there's the fine print there. Then it goes through um, the medications that they're on, which, um, you know, to our point previously, probably reflects um, uh, the severer cohort because around 45% are on biologics. Um, but there's 60% are on traditional DMARDs, including the anti-malarials, uh, and then uh, along with the other medications as well. And then, it, and then it describes their manifestations or their presentations, because one of the certainly the things that, uh, you know, we worry about when people are on immunosuppressants is do they not present in the same way? You know, do they actually present in a subtle way or do they decompensate and we don't even know? Well, that, and that described that patients present with cough and fever and the typical things that have been described in other cohorts. And then it described our admission rate, which is around 35%, and our death rate, the death rate in that first cohort, which was about 5%. Um, and so it was essentially to put out some information out there and say, look, these are our patients, and this is, this is essentially the first um, uh, lot of information out of the database. It's freely available on from the Lancet Rheumatology website and also from our website. There's links to it there if people are interested and want to know more. So, would so was hydroxychloroquine protective in any way in your cohort? No. So it's interesting you ask that. So we also had a publication published today that was a correspondence in. Um, <coughs> and also rheumatic diseases. And that, again, um, specifically addresses this point. And hydroxychloroquine was not protective in a lupus patient. So uh, despite what <laughs> prominent, um, prominent politicians might say, yeah. And that's also freely available on the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases uh, online first site if people are interested. The actual table, the interesting table, is actually in the supplementary data, but Click on the link and it will open up the table, and that's that. Clearly, you can see the numbers, but it's not particularly. excellent. Hey, you know, I'm getting the impression, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, that our patients seem to be almost less at risk being immunosuppressed without drugs, because I expected so many more of them around the world to have a problem. Is that just because you only see your own little capture of patients? Or is that a feeling that sort of distilled down through the ether? Yeah, look, uh, I, I agree. Um, uh, so we've got we've got data that's uh, look literally very close to being published that will help to answer this question. But um, uh, there is already lots of published data out there, just small data sets showing that patients generally do fine on biologics. Uh, on um, traditional oral DMARDs, uh, often do fine. And uh, and so I, I would agree that that sort of gestalt that you've got is is uh, is is likely to be correct. And some of, our, some of the discussions about whether medications are protective or not, there's certainly new there's data that we're going to publish and there's sort of data that's coming out of the IBD registry as well that's certainly going to try and address some of those things too. But... So do you mind if you cover off a couple of those things? Like, 
any evidence from what you've seen that NSAIDs are actually bad unless they've got renal impairment or some other issue? Uh, no, so there's no evidence that I've seen that um, that NSAIDs uh, are bad, yeah. But one of the problems with looking at NSAIDs is that um, because they're prescription, uh, because often they're over the counter, they're often not um, re potentially recorded in the way that we would hope, you know, more rigorously when prescription medications are recorded. And so, um, you know, the issues with um, collecting that information, even in patients that might be reported to our registry or patients that are collected from, for example, hospital administration systems, if the admitting doctor doesn't take the time to ask that question, then it's not going to get recorded and we're not going to have good data. So even if people come out and say they're not protective or they're protective or they're at risk, I would certainly say I would really want to be very carefully looking at the, um, the way that data was collected before I'd put a huge amount of weight on that. Okay. And steroids, the patients are always very hung up about steroids and what to do with them. What's, what are you recommending? Look, steroids are a risk for lots of reasons, um, but also steroids um, are often used in patients with more severe disease. Uh, and so, and patients with more severe disease often have more comorbidities. And so if we were to purely look at patients on steroids versus not patients on steroids, and you don't very carefully control for comorbidities, you are potentially going to get a, an inaccurate picture. Um, look, I suspect that we're going to see that higher doses of steroids are going to be, um, uh, are going to lead to uh, poorer outcomes. But we see that in every single other case when steroids are used. So I don't think that's going to be a earth-shattering observation if that's what comes out. And can you comment a bit on IL-6 inhibitors and the little baricit nirmanic dope? Yeah, look, I would say that we really do not have enough information right now to, to, and even the information we have, you've got to be very clear that it's prone to selection, you know, significantly prone to selection bias. But just looking at the registry, we really don't have the numbers to actually make discussions about that and to really use, to really generate information that we're able to really solidly use. I think we're gonna to have to look to the clinical trials that hopefully shouldn't be too far off being reported. I know right. that the French put out a press release and that they've got their data in review. Um, and so I'd hope to see it pretty soon because I've seen some astronomically short review times of two <laughs> days, for example. And editors ask me to review stuff within two days or one day. So there's the lots of that paper. Yeah. yeah. He's on their editorial board or something, that French guy, anyway. So mm. um, how are you, you're planning to maintain this longer term? Say the whole thing fizzles in six months when the vaccine magically appears. Can, are you going to keep it going? What's the, what's the plan with the data sort of in the longer term? Well, that, that's a great question because... Um, you know, in reality, I don't think we're going to see a coronavirus vaccine in 6, 12, 18, 24 months, right? 
vaccinating 6 billion people or some fraction of that is a pretty mammoth exercise. So I think um, COVID-19 and coronavirus is going to be relevant for a while yet. Um, but after that, um, I think that there's been a really nice demonstration that at least in a crisis situation, we get really great pull together of the global rheumatology community. And if we can continue to leverage that for things that we maybe we've got an advantage, if you think about there might be large rheumatoid arthritis cohorts in big cities and in big research centres, but, but what, what potentially might a global organisation be able to really leverage? And that might be low-frequency things like low-frequency diseases or low-frequency drug use or adverse reactions to drugs or those sort of things. So certainly it's been, it's been some passing discussion about what might happen, but in reality we have been way too busy trying to uh, trying to manage what we're dealing with right now. But certainly that's something that, you know, people have been saying, hey, look, maybe maybe this can carry on in another form and, and do good and, and continue to leverage the collaboration that we've put together. So you're probably running it on goodwill at the moment. You think you'll need some funding longer term to store the data and data mine the data, NHMRC or some ULAR grant or you know something. I, I just it's all done goodwill at the moment, which is fantastic. But as it gets bigger and bigger, and as months go by, you might just need some funding. Yes, yeah, so that's really front of mind because we've all got day jobs and you know a lot of us are academics, but um, we've all got um, existing research that you know, it's either gone into hibernation or is done at 3am in the morning as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, we're actively working with that and we've had offers from a number of um, people in industry to support us and that's just something we're working through right now. So um, to facilitate that, um, we have technically become a, um, a section of the ACR um, to allow um, all the expertise that the ACR has to try and help us to do the things that we're not good at, like finance and negotiating with funding partners. So, you know, we, we're very clear in the ACR is that they want to support and uh, foster the global collaboration that we have, um, but they also want to support us to be the best we can be. And so that's why they're helping with us and that's why we were very happy for them to uh, help us. But we um, very um, we very much value the the links that we have with both EULA and with the the rest of the world collaborators that we have, and we think that's a pretty special thing. Um, what's ended up forming, and we want to keep that. So um, that that would be the the longitudinal goal would be to maintain our global a global focus. So from your experience so far. We're telling our patients, stay on your drugs until you get sick and then stop them. Any take-home messages from what you've, what you've seen and experienced so far? Yeah, so um, I, I would be doing exactly that and that's what, what, what my patients, um, that's what I tell my patients. Clearly there are some patients who say, look, I, you know, I'm not interested and I'm just going to stop my drugs anyway and, you know, that's their prerogative, that's fine. But um, 
uh, I would generally um, leave my patients on their medications. The hydroxychloroquine issue, you know, people are like, should I, what should I do with this? Look, I think we just leave patients as they are. Um, it, probably looking at the pharmacokinetics of hydroxychloroquine, you probably need a lot more. And when you take a lot more, the, the safety side of it and the toxicity side of it becomes so much more relevant. So um, until uh, we get adequate clinical trials, I'm just telling patients to stay exactly on what they are. Um, and, uh, and, and if they get, if they get unwell, I um, would encourage them to get tested, obviously. And, uh, and, and, and if they're interested, fill out the physician survey, which about, I'm sorry, the patient survey, which is on our site. And if physicians are interested, I would tell them to enroll their patients. And there's lots of information on our website. Um, and we're releasing information all the time, like we did today in annals, and we will be very shortly releasing a significant paper with 600 patients, which is just in the final stages of um, getting uh, in in revision. So, um, but I wouldn't. Um, I, I would. I would carry on, and I would stick with really the advice that generally most people have been given, including the ACR and other major organisations, which is stay on your meds because the you know, the adverse events associated with going off them in in a pretty uncertain benefit. Yeah. yeah. And then they flare and they wind up on higher doses of steroids and it goes round yeah. and round. Yeah, so, absolutely. So where, so where can patients find more information and resources? How do they find the registry? And uh, how do they um, fill out stuff and log on and do all that? Yeah, so it's um, we, we try to make it really easy. So if you go to our website, which is room-covid.org, you can see that there's very clear buttons for the patient survey, and that's available in multiple languages that leverages our um, awesome global collaborators to help. And then from a physician survey point of view, there's very clear buttons there. Now, there's there's three different places that you'll land up if you're doing the physician survey. One is the global pediatric survey, which is run out of Boston, and that's separate to us. But very early on, we found that we decided that it would make most sense for pediatric experts and registry data to collect that. So we've, we're very, very supportive of that, and that's what we're linking to, but that's linked through our page. And then if you're from a European area or a EULAR country, because there are some EULAR countries outside of Europe, then, um, then you'll get linked through to the EULAR registry. And the EULAR registry and the global registry are the same. There's no complicated sign-on or passwords. You put your details in, and the details are simply to allow us to give you the, the, the opportunity to add further information in the future. So, for example, if... If you have a patient that you know and you maybe you see one of your own patients in hospital, you go and see them, you collect the information, you want to contribute and we'd love you to, you put it in, you find out later that in fact they became more unwell maybe and went to ICU and then they were discharged and went home. You can then give us that additional information by, by using the links that we send you when you put in the initial information. So um, we... Um, we obviously we don't want you to put in the patients too early because we don't know certainly about potential outcomes. But then, uh, if you put in the information and you need to update it, there's certainly that capacity there too. And the survey should really take between five and fifteen minutes, depending on 
you know, if you've got all the information in front of you, we aim, don't aim for it to be onerous. And if you have any problems, you just email the website, um, email that email address on our homepage. And if you've got any questions about things like ethics, uh, then you just talk to us, really. The, the registry is being deemed not for patient research in the entire of the United States and in multiple countries in, in Europe. Uh, and, and so um, if you've got questions about ethics or IRBs or anything, you just let us know and we've got a team that will help you address that in your country if that's, if that's something that you want to find out more about or if you want to help. No, I think it's a fantastic collaboration. You're to be congratulated for all your hard work. I was so impressed with the immediacy of Twitter, the, the instantaneous information that you can get quite easily updated the things that you don't quite catch or you catch two days later it's there immediately so it's very impressive any final thoughts or comments you'd like to make look i would actually just really like to thank um the global rheumatology community for supporting this and i really want to thank everyone who uh is involved with the alliance so um, the Alliance is doing other things as well as opposed to the registries, including literature searches. And we have lots of teams of people who are working away and we've had lots of people who are working on things like country-specific ethics. We've got um, an amazing steering committee that are just working all hours of the day and night on this data. So we've got an amazing group of people. But, but you know, that still wouldn't be enough if we didn't have rheumatologists out there all over the world you know, and it's over 40 countries have contributed to putting patients in the registry because, you know, if you put the patients in, we get the data and we can report it back to you and help you look after your patients. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship and I'm just so, um, I'm so thankful that everyone's come on board and I really want to extend the thanks of myself and the steering committee and everyone uh, from the Alliance that, that for the contributions that everyone has made. So thank you very much for your time, Phil. It was greatly appreciated. We hope our discussion has provided a comprehensive overview of the COVID-19 registry, objectives, protocols, procedures. We also hope you feel motivated to put all the audience to put their own patients and the patient's data and the patients encouraged to do the surveys into your registry and hope to go a long way to informing future decisions regarding the treatment of COVID-19 in patients with rheumatic disease. And we sincerely hope you're staying safe and we wish you well in your practice. All the very best, Philip. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.